0: Lynn Hiles Ministries presents Dr. Lynn Hiles That You Might Have Life. And here's your host, Dr. Lynn Hiles.
1: We want to welcome you back to the program again today and thank you again for joining us uh, in this powerful series. I always enjoy it so much when my oldest son, Jeremy, uh, who is pastor of Word That Freeze, is on the set with me because he just has a tremendous mind revelation and can communicate it well. I just was in a seminar and several people came up to me and said they just love to see him just flow like a river. And uh, I mean, it just took me, we sat here and talk about things and uh, get excited. As a matter of fact, in the chapter that I wrote in this book From Law to Grace, A Kingdom Paradigm Shift, you can get that book, by the way, on Amazon or on our website. It's also available as an audio download on Audible, and uh, you can order it also from our website. But uh, the uh, chapter where I talk about uh, God is able of these stones to raise up children to Abraham, actually the inspiration from that chapter actually came from Jeremy. That was one of the key thoughts that he shared with me one day. And so I give honor where honor is due. It's good to have you on the program again today. We just always have the magic when we're together. Mm We're talking about one of the things uh, we were joking a little bit before the cameras came back on. And my my other son, who's the producer for the program, said, you guys talk off uh, camera, did a 20 minute program. You need to turn the cameras back on and keep on talking. But we just kind of stir each other up with how we think about these things. But we're talking about the book of Joshua. It seems like this is kind of Jeremy's book, you know, and I think they are powerful, powerful patterns throughout the scriptures. And the scripture tells us again in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, just to give us a place to biblically hang these types and shadows on, the apostle Paul writing to the first century church at Corinth says that all of the things that happened to the children of Israel under Moses happened to them as examples for us, not us, but the first century church at Corinth, Mm -hmm. upon whom the ends, plural, the ages have come. And if you watch my program very much, you will see that I've put a chart up there many times that talks about the ends of the ages. It's like two yep. circles. One circle overlaps the other circle. The first circle would be the old covenant and the new co- covenant would be the next circle. And right there where the two circles merge is a 40-year transition period. And where the front end and the back end of the old covenant, that's the ends of the ages. Mm-hmm. They were the people in transition that we're transitioning out of the old covenant bondage of Egypt and into the new covenant promised land of rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ and into the kingdom of God that the Bible talks so much about. And once again, I think it's important for me to say this, and then I'll let Jeremy talk some more here a little bit, but I think it's important to say this because one of the things that really shifted my thinking concerning Egypt was the 11th chapter, of Revelation, where he's talking about the two witnesses, which I believe are types and shadows of Moses and Elijah, the law of the prophets, the old covenant. Again, a time of transition. But at that point, you know, in that uh, it says, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Well, if you think about that, our Lord was not crucified in Sodom or Egypt. Our Mm -hmm. Lord was crucified in Jerusalem, the centerpiece of old covenant Judaism. So the exodus out of that and headed for the promised land is not just an exodus from, let's say a physical world, but an exodus out of the bondage of a slave mentality because under law, you're a servant in the new covenant. You're a son. son. So I think that That's why we're talking about these patterns. And when he opens Joshua by saying, Moses, my servant is dead now. Uh, Arise, Joshua is going to take you over. It's like Moses is dead. Yeshua, which is the Hebrew name, Jesus, is going to bring you in. Moses brought you out with a rod. Joshua brings you in with a mercy seat. good to have you back on the program. Jump in there.
0: Always good. Always good. Uh, You know, we were just, what we were talking about, Jason, so we need to turn the cameras on, is that... uh, uh, And Joshua, after they had, we had talked last program about the crossing of the Jordan and that uh, they took the stones out of the river Jordan and set up a a monument. Because Joshua said, one day your children are going to ask what means these stones. And it says, in that day when they crossed that Jordan, that Joshua was magnified in the eyes of the people. uh, And they feared him as they feared Moses. So you're seeing a transition from their following of Moses to now Joshua is being magnified, and here they, they're going to follow after Joshua crossing into this promised land. And we showed the pattern even if that when John was in the River Jordan, picture of the Old Covenant prophets and Old Covenant priests. He was bar- he was getting ready to bear an ark called Christ into the River Jordan once again, and there was about to be another transition that happened. But he's standing and he says, don't think that just because you have Moses, as your father, he said, I'm able to raise up of Moses or of, of Abraham uh, seeds by these stones. I'm able to take these stones and raise up seeds at Abraham. And he's talking about the same, I guarantee he was at the same spot standing at this monument. It's not just some random stones that he's gonna take and make seeds of yeah. Abraham. It's of these stones, this monument, that one day your children are gonna ask, what do these stones mean? Yeah. And it's where God had brought us over this Jordan into the promised land. And And so once again, Christ was about to bring us into the true promised land. It should yeah. have just screamed to that first century Jew: "It's time to cross over again." Mm-hmm. And so, when Christ is when Christ is is taken, it gets into that river door, and again. We talked last week about how John's. You know, they're asking John, "Well, what do we got to do to be saved?" Well, you know, soldier asks him, "You know, what do we got to do?" Well, you got to stop killing people. You know, what's a publican got to do? Well, you got to stop taking money from people. You, you know, and every one of these things is again, he's preaching the law. He's talking about. You know, there's going to be one come. He's got a fan in his hand. He's going to thoroughly purge his floor. And he's talking about all the judgment side of Christ. But when Christ is lowered into that Jordan River to be baptized, he comes out of the waters of baptism. The Spirit descends upon him like a dove. And he begins to, uh, he goes out into the wilderness for 40 days. And he begins this transition of, you know, uh, being tempted. But when he comes out of there, he begins his first public appearance. And his first message is that. Uh, he he declares that this is the year of jubilee. I've come this to give you this yeah. is the year of flavor. and he stops reading that book before it gets to the judgment side of it, yeah. because he comes to give them favor first. Yeah, comes to give them an opportunity to make this end by faith, by repentance, by simply believing on him. Yeah, you know, and if they refuse to believe on him, and they you know, because he gives you know sometimes we look at the parables even. And one of the parables is, is that, you know, a man, he says to, he says, there, in one place, he says, a man owns a field. And he said, he lent it out to husbandmen. And he says, you know, uh, I'm going to lend it out to you, but I'm going to come and, and receive what is mine of you. And so he says, uh, he sends his servants to receive what is his. And When they get to the servants, it says, they killed, they, they stoned them. And he said, he said, others, and they killed them. And he said, finally, he said, you know, I'm going to send my son because surely they'll receive my son. This is my field. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he said, when they got my, he said, I sent them, he, the, the, the owner of that field sent their son and they killed the son. He said, now what do you think the owner of that field is going to do to those people? And we read those parables and we put them off into the future and we don't realize that Jesus is talking to that, that group of people.
1: In that 40 year gap. In
0: that 40 year gap. In that, and he's talking to them and he says, listen, he said, the, the, whole, the whole parable is this. He said, the field that he had given was this promised land? Yeah. And he, God was this, this man that owned the field. He owned the field and yeah. he lent it out to the children of Israel. Yeah. I'm going to give you houses you did not build, vineyards you did not plant. Yeah. Uh, but all I ask of you is that you remember me.
1: Yeah.
0: Do not, when you come into the land of promise, do not forget the Lord, your, the Lord God. your God. But they have forgot the Lord their God. And so he says, I sent the prophets and you killed them. I sent more prophets and you had stoned them. Finally, I have sent my son Jesus. Yeah and you're going to kill him. What do you think I'm going to do to the people that own that field? And the judgment doesn't come until they had destroyed, the, until they had killed the son of the owner of that field. Yep. And that's when the judgment came upon that husbandman. And he says, then you're going to take that field from them and give it to another people. You and you that's
1: know, a, Interestingly enough, that parable precedes the Matthew 24 as Jesus stood on the Mount of Olives and said, you that killed the prophets, stone them that are sent to them upon you will come the blood Of all the martyrs from the blood of Zacharias to the blood of righteous Abel. He uses that same terminology in Revelation 17 and 18 when he calls the harlot there, and this is one of the key earmarks of the harlot, in her was found the blood of all the martyrs from the blood of righteous. (laughs) So in other words, it connects it very strongly to that Jerusalem city right there, and he's saying that they're going to take the vineyard from you and give it to a nation producing the fruit. In other words, the inclusion of the Gentiles are people who would just simply believe that includes both Jew and Gentile. But he begins to, like you said, he prophesies in uh, the beginning of his ministry, the Isaiah passage, the spirit of the Lord God has upon me because he sent me to declare the year of the favor of God. He stops there. The last few words of that chapter that Jesus does not read in the temple is and to declare the day of the vengeance of our God. But in Luke's gospel, when Jesus is giving the Olivet Discourse, which is the same as the Matthew 24 one, he says this, as he prophesies the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of that temple and the destruction of that old covenant whole system, he says that these are the days of vengeance, that all things that were spoken might be fulfilled. But it wasn't the day of vengeance when he came, he gave... 40 more years. But the truth of it is, I don't have time to unpack this because I do a lot of stuff on eschatology Mm -hmm. anyway. But he gave them 490 years, 70 weeks are determined upon my people, Daniel chapter nine said. And from the going forth, the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem until the Messiah, the prince, would be 483 years. The commandment went forth in Ezra chapter seven under King Artaxerxes, and exactly 483 years later, Jesus comes on the scene to give them the opportunity to repent. And so no. he's given them every opportunity and then gives them another 40 years. Mm-hmm. And then standing there in Matthew 24, when he gives that prophecy, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you that killed the prophets, how oft I would have gathered you. In other words, he weeps over Jerusalem because he wants to give him mm-hmm. mercy, but you would not. Yep. Therefore, your house has left you des- desolate. So he's inviting them to come in. Let me just say a few more things since I'm, the area of no, expertise for me is, a, is a, you know, eschatology. But I'm thinking, you know, we were sharing in the car coming over that Deuteronomy, where they have the curses, and the people call the covenant curses on themselves. And Moses is about to fade off the scene. Mm -hmm. He's about to die. And God says to Moses, now teach the people this song. Tell them to teach it to their children, and their children's children, and their children's children. In other words, to generation after generation after generation, he said, because this people are going to go whoring after other gods. And when they do, that as they're singing this song, they're going to know that all the curses of this book are going to come upon them. And so when, when you see Revelation chapter 15 open and God says these are the last plagues and in and, uh, and them is filled up the wrath of God, it's not something future God is going to do. It is God keeping his end of the co- covenant bargain to mm-hmm. give them the curses of Deuteronomy. Although he came to save them from them, they had rejected their Messiah for the final time. And now the vineyard's about to be taken from them. So he's giving them favor. And then A.D. 70, which is the end of the old covenant, that's the reason God won't do it again. Mm -hmm. That's why it's called the last plagues. And what's interesting to me, this really hit me, Jeremy, is in uh, Revelation 15, it says, and they sang the song of Moses. That should have just screamed to every first century Jewish person standing there that, uh uh-oh, (laughs) This is why we've been singing this thing for hundreds and hundreds of years to know that, okay, this is the final straw that broke the camel's back. And what we're going to do is there's going to be another generation dies in the wilderness because they fail to believe again. And one other thing, and I would say quickly, and I'm going to give it back to you again, is that when Ezekiel chapter one, two, and three, he starts to describe a scene from the book of Revelation or the book of Revelation is using the the imagery that Ezekiel had. He sees a four-faced living creature. He sees a little book that's open. He sees the wings outstretched. I mean, it is an absolute repeat of Ezekiel 1, 2, and 3 where he sees the four faces of the living creature. It's an absolute repeat of Revelation 4. And then he even says this. There's a little book that's open. There's a little book. Mm -hmm. Take the book, and he tells the prophet Ezekiel, take this book and eat it. It'll be sweet in your mouth, bitter in your belly. Same thing he tells John the Revelator. Take this book, eat it. Same exact verbiage. But in Ezekiel, he says, in this little book are lamentations, mourning, and woe. So when you see the little book open in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, it is full of lamentation, mourning, and woe. It is God at the end of this 40 year transition period, having been forced to keep his end of the covenant bargain. Mm-hmm. And he begins to fulfill all the prophecies that Jesus gives because the four horses of the apocalypse are the unfolding of what Jesus prophesied in Matthew 24 war, famine, earthquakes, you know, death and hell followed, stars fall from heaven, earthquakes, all of those catastrophic things are not in our future. They were at the end of that Old Covenant yeah. period of time, and God was giving them every opportunity to repent. Now, I would say this yet, is that the one thing that I do believe is that because it, the book of Revelation is a revelation of Jesus Christ, for believers, in that little book is not lamentation, mourning, and woe for us because Revelation 5 says, and they sang a new song, yeah. singing, Thou hast redeemed us. So for believers... That's what we've been redeemed from. And for every believer that heard the prophecy of Jesus, that when you see Jerusalem encompassed with armies, know that it's near even at the door. Then if you're in Jerusalem, flee to the mountains. And they did, and they were saved from the catastrophe that would come. But once that period of time was over, that old covenant, they transitioned, they should have entered into a full promised land experience. And I know that's a lot of eschatology, but I thought well, I, I you wanted know, to say know, because that we were we talking,
0: We were talking, you know, uh, last program too about, the the crossing of both the Red Sea and the crossing of this Jordan. When they crossed the Red Sea, they left Egypt and they walked on dry land. But whenever uh, the Egyptian armies came pursuing them, the Red Sea was was closed back up, destroying their enemy, but also preventing them a way back to Egypt. Same way with the Jordan. When they crossed the Jordan, they enter into the Promised Land. Once the priests that were bearing the Ark exited that Jordan, the river went back. Uh, the way it was, and it overflowed its banks that time. So it's a difficult; you can't you can't go back the way yeah. you came. And so, you know, when we talk about the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Israel in seventy A.D., some people might would ask, well, why is it? that he would destroy that city and destroy that temple because there's a lot of mentality of people that God wants to restore and rebuild that. And they don't realize that the temple is now not a, not a physical building, but no, you're not, you are the temple right. of the Holy Ghost. But when you look at the reason why is that thing destroyed in 70 AD as a fulfillment of what was promised to them under the old covenant, why would God destroy that physical temple and that, that physical city and people? is because what he was doing was just like he was closing the Red Sea, just like he was rolling back the waters of the Jordan, he was making sure there was not a way to go back to that old covenant system, to not go back to law, but that you had to go forward into a promised land, which is Christ and which Christ is Our rest. He is our promised land. He is our houses we did not build and vineyards we did not plant. And so he was destroying that temple and destroying that system so that there's no way to go back. See, when people are talking about with God, you know they're going to rebuild the temple over in Israel and stuff like that. Even even restore animal sacrifices even if you did, and even if you built that thing again, none of the original furniture is there. There is no pure priesthood to be able to give the sacrifices. There is no he God so destroyed that thing. Because he wanted to make sure there was no way to go back to it. Because there is no other name in which men can be saved. It is the blood, you know, if we were to go back to the blood of animal sacrifices. Then what you're saying is the blood of Jesus was not enough. It's not enough to save us of our sins. It's not enough to redeem us. It's not enough to, to, you know, and it, to me, that is blasphemy. When we say that what Christ did on the cross yep. and his death burial and resurrection wasn't enough, and there has to be another sacrifice or another way to go back then you i did not you did not get it <laughs> yeah you didn't understand the context of what he did and how thorough he was in that that uh in that that his death burial, and resurrection, you know, and so God destroying that temple was to make sure there was never another way to go back. You can't go back to Egypt. You can't go back to the wilderness. The only way is forward into this promised land. Even uh, where uh, Jesus is being baptized, John says, he says, you know, this water. He says, I indeed baptize you with water, but there comes one after me, who's not going to baptize you with water. He's going to baptize you. With the Holy Ghost and with fire, and so when you see the transition here is that when that when Jesus comes up out of the when you see the uh, the death the bear, the death burial and resurrection of Christ and bringing us into the, the the inauguration of the the new covenant is that they were up in an upper room on the day of Pentecost and God gave them. The Holy Ghost and they the tongues of fire descended upon them. They began to speak with other tongues, and three thousand people were added. I believe it was three thousand were added to the church that day, and so there is this transition that's coming where Jesus didn't just baptize them with water; he began to baptize them with the Holy Ghost, which is the indwelling presence of God. Yeah, it's God moving out of that tabernacle into into this one, and so you know it's there is a. There is a constant sacrifice in this temple. It is the reminder of what Christ did in his death period. He was the sacrifice. He would behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. It doesn't just cover it, but he takes away the sin of the world. And it absolutely happened with the blood of Christ. And so there is no reason to ever go back to that system. And neither can we. Yeah. Because, like I said, if they could have went when they were in the wilderness. They say, they remember, well, at least back in Egypt we had leaks to go. At least back in Egypt we had graves. And they could, if, they, if there would have been a way back, they would have went back. And it's the same way with us today. If we keep looking at the Old Covenant system and trying to go back to that Old Covenant system, but there's not a way back to it. Yep. And so there has to be a mind change. There has to be a repentance in the church that we change our mind from thoughts of death, which is what the Old Covenant was. It was a, it was a law. It was the law of sin and death. It was a covenant of death, and change our minds from thoughts of death into new life, yeah. which is Christ. And so we have to begin to make this transition and this repentance into a mindset that there's no way back. The waters have been closed for us to go back, and that we our only way is to go forward into this new covenant. And I we didn't get nowhere near uh, what we had talked about before. We got more programs, uh, you know. But we the the next thing that happens once they enter they exit that Jordan, and we'll probably get into this in another program is that the first thing that happens is they are recircumcised. Yeah. But it's not a circumcision, you know, in the in the new covenant, it's not a circumcision like it was in of Moses' flesh, day yeah. of the flesh. It's a circumcision of the heart. It's a new covenant. Yeah. And so the first thing that happens with them once they exit this 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 River Jordan is there's is a new circumcision that happens. And then when that happens, there's a whole transition that begins to happen as well within uh how they have perceived their life. You got to think these people that come into that cross that Jordan River. They're a whole generation that was born in the wilderness. Yep. They never saw Egypt. Yep. All they know is the stories their parents and grandparents yep. told them about it. They didn't see. They didn't cross that Red Sea. They never saw God destroy the Egypt. They just know the stories of what they were told. They were born in this wilderness. And that's all they'd ever known was this wilderness experience of being, you know, just going after, you know, I call it one move of God to the next. They're following this this cloud from one place to another. And it's this constant move for 40 years. They're just following, living in tents, never having an abode. And this is the only life they know is this. And so when God brings them across this Jordan and does something brand new, it is completely different. Than all their life experiences have been, and I think that really, for me, I look at this. I look at the generation of people right now, and most of them have lived in a wilderness, and they've been. We've been following after moves of God, and just hearing the stories that have been told to us about. Well, you remember this revival. You remember back in these days. You remember that preacher and how he did this, and it's been a whole generation that has just lived on the experiences. Of somebody else and trying to recreate this move of God. And I think that where the frustration has been is that God is not looking to move you anymore. He's wanting to take you in to a promised land where it is you're not just looking for miracles, but it's you're living the miracle. You're yeah. living in the yeah. houses. You know, they were getting miracles daily. You're getting the fruit of the land instead of
1: the man of the fell, so to speak. They, kind of they
0: they transitioned from just these miracles every day and just are these miracles that would happen here and there and and that's their life. That's all they know. To the to a promised land where God just really begins to show them as sons and begins to just pour his blessings upon them. Again, I talked about that there's giants in the land. So these are not small things. These are giant houses yeah. you did not build and giant vineyards you did not plant. And so, but as long as our mentality is still on that side of the Jordan. And we're still wanting to go back to that old covenant system and rebuild that temple and rebuild that move because that's all we know. Back in Egypt, we had leeks and garlics. Back in Egypt, we had this and we had that. Boy, seems like everybody behaved better when we were preaching the law. Seemed like everybody was doing, you know. Seemed like the miracles were just better back then. Or we, you know, people weren't afraid to spend time in service and spend a couple hours there and be there every night for tent revival. And and we keep wanting to go back to that, but the waters are cut off. There's no way back to that. So we have to find out what it's like to live in this promised land and some experiences to have in this promised land. That temple was destroyed for a reason. It was destroyed to make sure we can never go back to that old covenant system because God's heart wasn't in it anyway. His heart is to give us the goodness, to give us the promise, to give us rest. And so in that transition, we have to begin to move forward and realize there's no way back to that old system. You know, the whole
1: book of Hebrews is written to that end. It's talking to Hebrews that are in the final years of that 40-year transition. Mm -hmm. And he's telling them, if you sin willfully, once you've been enlightened, you've tasted the power of the coming age. And then to to go back, you trot underfoot. The blood of the sacrifice saves an unholy thing. That's really not talking about I sinned on Saturday night. He's talking about if you go back on purpose and you sin, which means to miss the mark, and you go back to Judaism, there remains no more sacrifice. In other words, there's not another lamb coming. And he reiterates that again in the 10th chapter when he tells them, don't go back because if you do, there's a fiery indignation, which that was the fan in his hand Mm -hmm. where he would come and thoroughly destroy that and purge the floor to keep them from going back into Judaism. But I was thinking while you were talking about even, you know, in Egypt, how they had, we must change our appetites. You know, in other words, our, our thinking is bound to leeks, watermelons, and garlics which if you've never tasted anything else, that might be looked like it's good on the day. But I just thinking while you were saying that, you know, it'd be good to preach it sometime, put a, you know, a garlic, a, a watermelon, and, a, a, you know, leeks, garlic, and watermelon on a plate, and then put milk and honey, you know, uh, abundance of lamb without ration, uh, houses you did build, giant houses, giant fruit, giant, and, and start thinking, we've got to transition our thinking from just the staples of an Egyptian you know, in other words, we we got to raise the way we think. <laughs> yeah. In other words, in order to live in houses we didn't build and eat from vineyards we didn't plant, you're going to have to change your perceptions and your appetites for what you were hungry for. But, you know, it's amazing when you've never tasted, let's say you never tasted a lobster. You might think, well, that's an ugly looking thing. It just. But if you ever taste one of them, you're like, I, you <laughs> know, once you do taste of the good things, no wonder the scriptures say, oh, taste and see. That the Lord is good. For the Lord is good that you would you know, start to set an appetite. And when the manna ceased, it was because God wanted to feed them on the old corn of the land and the fruit of the land. And to me, the old corn of the land is, again, the corn speaks of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, his finished work that is always full of supply, because he said, except a corn of wheat fall on the earth and die, it abides alone. And when we feed on that, it brings us into this promised land where there's an outflow of milk and honey, and our diet must change. We must feed on new covenant realities. Well, we're about to run out of time. We're going to come back again and film another one, but we need you to uh, take a moment, if you would, and help us uh, to be able to uh, you know, reach the nations of the earth through the television ministry. If you'd like to sow a seed into it, it's easy to do by simply going onto the website there, or I think there might even be an icon where you can scan it with your phone on there, And you can just go and it'll give you directly a link where you can give via credit card or PayPal. Also, you can send a check or money order to the address that will come on the screen or call the number on the screen and someone will take your call. If you don't get an answer, leave a message and we will call you back. God bless you. Thank you for joining us. I am excited to announce the release of my latest book titled The Great I Am.